0: From the time we're young, we love to tell stories. We love to draw stories. We need to talk about stories. We love to take the events around us and figure out how they fit into our lives and craft a narrative about our lives. But what we don't realize sometimes as we're crafting that narrative of our lives is the stories we tell are vitally important. The stories we tell are crucial to the lives of those around us. In June of 1992, two guys, Jim Davidson and Mike Price, climbed Mount Rainier. We have a picture of Jim uh, Davidson that we're going to put on the screen. This is Jim. While they were climbing, on the way down, they summited. They got to where they needed to go. But on the way down, two climbers fell 80 feet through a snow bridge into a glacial crevasse. A pitch black, ice-walled crack in the massive glaciers that cover Mount Rainier. Mike Price, the other partner, died. But Jim survived the fall. In the book, The Ledge, Jim Davidson tells the story of his miraculous survival, his courageous climb out of the crevasse. Throughout the book, Jim will go back and forth. He starts by describing, realizing that he's in the midst of this and the darkness that's around him with all that is going on. And in the next chapter, he will flash back to another point in history. And throughout the book, he alternates between what's happening in the crevasse and what happened in his life growing up in his early childhood, in his young adult years, primarily describing his relationship with his dad. And as early as Jim can remember, his father had shown an almost reckless confidence in him. Jim worked for his dad and his dad did a dangerous job. His dad painted high, steep pitch roofs and electrical towers, and he had Jim out on the job as early as the age of 12. Now, Jim's mom was terrified by the work. But Jim's father kept communicating his belief that Jim could accomplish great things. if he pressed through adversity, just kept going, he knew he could do great things. As Jim describes in the book, as he stood bloodied and bruised on a two-foot-wide snow ledge next to the body of his climbing partner, Over and over again, he heard the encouraging voice and stories of his dad. With minimal gear and no experience in climbing at that level, Jim spent the next five hours climbing out, battling fatigue and the crumbling ice and snow that threatened to bury him. Throughout the ordeal, Jim says he over and over recalled the words of his dad. You can do anything. The stories his dad would relate to him of accomplishment and people that achieved the impossible. The stories his dad continually spoke into his life about his ability to accomplish whatever he needed to accomplish. And five grueling hours later, thanks to the constant reminder of the stories that his dad told him, Jim climbed out of the crevasse to safety. The stories we tell are important. Now, perhaps none of us will ever have something as monumental as that be determined by the stories we have told our children. But as parents, as spouses, as friends, as believers, the stories we tell around us, the words that we use, the way that we speak them, the relationships that we build... How we frame and explain the circumstances of our lives has a great impact on the way the world views us on the way that our children see Jesus. I spent the last week in Phoenix, Arizona, and anytime you tell people you' going to Phoenix, Arizona in summer, they're like, "Wow, how hot was it? It actually wasn't that hot. It's 91 degrees most of the week. now today, I think it's 118, so glad you're not there, right? But I was at the Southern Baptist Convention and a lot of people have lots of misconceptions about Southern Baptist Convention. They don't really know what's going on or what's happening there. And here's the truth. Part of this story, as I was thinking about the stories we tell as we take the circumstances of our lives and we fix them into a story, into a narrative, it determines how people view us. I thought it was interesting what happened at the Southern Baptist Convention this week because there was this kind of juxtaposition of two things happening at once that reminded me that the story that we tell from the facts that are given can have radically different results. So I don't know if any of you read... I started to say, y'all read any newspaper articles? Nobody reads newspapers anymore, all right? Read online. Anybody here read a story about the Southern Baptist Convention this week? A couple of people, all right? Here's my guess. If you read a story about the Southern Baptist Convention, it was not a positive story, okay? My guess is that you would read and go, wow, what are they doing? What is going on over there? Some of you maybe not even know that we're Southern Baptist church. Like, I'm a part of a church like that, right? There was this controversy that kind of kind of developed on Tuesday." And here's the truth, all right? I had a great week of the Southern Baptist Convention. The, I am more convinced than ever that we are moving in the right direction in almost every area of Southern Baptist life. So it was a great week. Now on Tuesday, there was this moment when a resolution, and there's lots of stuff that, you know, you've, if you've ever been to a church business meeting, imagine the most stringent business meeting you've ever been to with 5,000 people attending. Okay, That's what the Southern Baptist Convention is. Robert rules of orders and points of order and you can't speak and you, that is out of order and we can have that and you can't have that. In the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the things that we value, that I love, is that anybody that is there can get up and say anything they want to say at a microphone if they're recognized. And so in the midst of that, there was a discussion, some of you may have seen this, about the Southern Baptist Convention having a resolution to condemn the alt-right or white supremacist movement in America. And when it was first brought to the convention floor from the Committee on Resolutions, there's a committee on that, because there's a committee on everything in Southern Baptist life, right? They did not bring it to the floor because they said that it was vague and not worded as clearly as it should have been. Well, that caused a response that the national news media said, Southern Baptists don't condemn white supremacists. Which is not what happened, but that's what they ran with. There was some debate back and forth on the floor at the convention that afternoon. That night, um, as always happens on Tuesday night or has for the last few years, Union University, my alma mater, great school, has a dinner for alumni. And so I went to the dinner for alumni, and we were in there eating, seeing people that I went to school with. And as I was walking back out, walking down the hallway from that, that it started a little late, so we were getting out a little late, so we weren't in there for some of the discussion. I see four cameras with lights on from news anchors with microphones interviewing people. I'm like, uh-oh, something happened. So I walk into the hall. I ask somebody a quick question. They tell me what's happened. That it's good, they're in the discussion. There was a vote taken. They're going to have a discussion later. The president of... Um The convention, who's a great guy, a guy that I know, a guy from Dyersburg, Tennessee, actually, pastor at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee, Steve Gaines, gets up and explains, just hold on, there's some stuff coming later in the night. And by the end of the convention, all of that was worked out, and we rightfully took a stand against the alt-right and the supremacist groups that claim that Christianity is somehow tied to the white rise in America. But as I was standing there, and all that's happening in the hallway... I'm in a worship service with four or five thousand people. Praise in the name of Jesus. Now, some of you won't recognize this name at all, but it was a moment for me. One of my favorite groups growing up in contemporary Christian music was a group named Big Tent Revival. Their lead singer is now the worship leader at Bellevue for contemporary service. He's leading worship. He's doing a great job. One of my friends from Union singing on the praise team. They're doing a great job leading us in worship. A great pastor named Greg Laurie gives a message. And then when all that ends, David Platt, president of IMB, stands up and starts to give a report, and we're doing a commissioning service. I took a picture. Um, I think we've got here. This is my picture. Now, here's what I want to tell you, okay? I was sitting on the very back section because I'm a Baptist and I don't get to do that very much, all right? And so you don't see much happening here. This is the the phrase that the IMB is using now, limitless, limitless missionaries. But what impacted me in that moment was this, that in the midst of that, all that happening out in the hallway All that discussion happening, political things going on, right here, David Platt was announcing, I want to introduce you to your newest Southern Baptist missionaries. And there were about 25 people standing right here. Now, I know you can't see that really good in the picture because I was way too far back. And then one by one, those people began to stand to the microphone, give their first names, the church that they were representing, how many kids they had, and where God was sending them. And one by one, Anne and Tyler, God has called us to do international missions. And the two of us and our three children will be moving to Eastern Europe. John and Kim, the Lord is leading us and our four kids to Central Asia. And they got to the end, and then they put up a screen. We knew that there were still people up there that we hadn't seen yet. They put a screen on there that said, for security reasons, the next few representatives of the Southern Baptist Convention will not be shown on the screen or in the light. And again, family stepped forward. Dave and Sarah going to a part of the world that they can't even show their face that they're going to be missionaries the commitment that was happening in that room. David Platt got up after they'd all announced and said, we're going to sing a song of praise to our God for your newest Southern Baptist missionaries. And while we were singing, suddenly out of the sides of the auditorium, they're carrying banners. And they're carrying banners with the region where these people are going to be going. And the missionaries are falling behind. And they go to nine different spots in the sanctuary or convention center. But at that moment, it was a sanctuary. And without any provocation, without any instruction, just suddenly everybody in that room started to move and surround those missionaries. Now, I just went to the one closest to me. And they said, they're, they're going to Central Asia. I can't share their names, but they're going to Central Asia because they're going to a hotbed. They've got a couple of kids. And I said, so where are you from? Now, listen, they were from all over the place, these people. Where are you from? Bowling Green, Kentucky. Their pastor is right there. It's a guy that went to school after I did at Union, but I knew him. And they sense as we like we're gonna do we're gonna to do today. We're gonna to gather around and pray for our LA mission team that's leaving this week. We're gonna spend time in prayer for them. We prayed for those missionaries. Those missionaries were crying. Their pastor was crying. I was crying. Everybody around me is crying. Doing the you know handle and like this, that whole thing crying you know. And I couldn't help but think of the difference in the story being told in the hallway and the story being told inside. Now, that's not to say that what was dealt with in the hallway and that eventually dealt with in the convention floor the next day needed to happen as an important part of the story. It is. But I couldn't help but think of what the world thought was going on and the story that was actually happening. How we take the circumstances of our life and tell it and use it is monumental. And here's what I want to do today, all right? I want to encourage you dads. I do want to encourage you. I read somewhere this week that on Mother's Day, we celebrate moms, and on Father's Day, we beat up dads, all right? So I don't want to encourage you. I do want to encourage you, all right? Now, to encourage you, it's going to seem like at first I'm not really encouraging you because I'm going to give you some statistics in just a minute that I think will be something that will shock you in some ways. But I want you to understand, dads, that the way that you interact with your kids, the way that you interact with uh, the world at large, that you fathers have a major impact on your family's life. It's not if you will have a major impact. It's not whether you will have an impact. It is you do have a major impact. And my goal is for us to think about the impact we're having, to stop for a moment and be encouraged to impact, as Jeff mentioned earlier, that we will impact it not just in ways that the world defines as successful, but that we will impact it for the glory of God and the spread of His kingdom. Have I already told you to open your Bibles? No. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. I just got involved there. I got going. All right. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2. What I want to look at today is the importance of the stories that fathers tell, of the words that fathers use, and the monumental difference they make in the lives of our children. Let me just give you some statistics. And this is not, I don't don't necessarily want you to, to write these down or to remember one specific. I just want you to get the overall impression. Because I want us to understand from the very beginning that fathers are important. And without them, our lives see an impact. For instance, statistics recently show that fatherless homes, homes without fathers, that the kids in those homes are eight times more likely to go to prison, nine times more likely to drop out of high school, ten times more likely to abuse chemical substances, twenty times more likely to have behavioral problems, thirty two times more likely to run away. In fact, 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, 85% of all children with behavioral disorders, 75% of all youth patients in chemical abuse centers, 71% of pregnant teenagers, 71% of high school dropouts, 70% of juveniles in state-operated facilities, and 63% of youth suicides are all from fatherless homes. Daughters that come from fatherless homes are 53% more likely to marry as a teen 92% more likely to divorce, and 164% more likely to be a single parent. Now, our world tries to de-emphasize dads and the importance of fathers. And yet, all kinds of research shows us that it is vitally important for dads. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, speaking to you that are dads, You have a vital role in the development of your kids and in the health of our society. Do not give up that role. Secondly, I speak to you that are here today. Some of you think, well, I'm in that group, but I'm not one of those statistics. And I say to you, by the grace of God, I am thankful for you and being here today. And I want you to hear hope. And we're going to get to that at the end, that even if you grow up in a home without a dad, that there is a father that is closer than a brother, a father who has given his own son for you. And desperately desires a relationship. The stories you tell and the words that you speak are vitally important. And they have the ability to build up or to tear down. Proverbs 18, says it this way. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The idea is that you can either build up or you can destroy or you can terrorize or you can help, that you can love or you can hurt with your words. And that those of us that are wise, those of us that understand that, are people that will blossom because of the words we use. I mean, every one of us in this room can think of a moment in our lives when someone's words hurt us deeply. We can think of a time in our lives when someone's words gave us life and helped us. First Thessalonians chapter two, we're going to look at this passage of scripture. It's not a Father's Day sermon kind of passage because it's a passage of Paul writing to the Thessalonians saying to them, this is how I treated you. This is what I said. It's not a passage on fatherhood. It's about the relationship between Paul and those to whom he ministered. But it also shows us the kind of words that we need to be using. Paul compares himself both to a mother and to a father in this passage. We'll see that in a minute. But what I want us to focus on is the conditions of how he spoke to them. And then at the end, the words that he used. The context of his words and then what he actually said. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 starting in verse 7. He says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, He said, we had the right to demand things from you. Instead, we were gentle among you as a nurse nurtures her own child. This is as a mother with her own child. That's what we were. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you would become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. Goes on. Working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel to you. You are witnesses and so is God of how devoutly, righteously and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, we comforted, we implored each of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says that we were like a father who spoke to you like a father speaks to you. Now what I want us to understand is that those words that came were not in isolation. They weren't just random words that he spoke. They came from a place that was important. It was a place of relationship that he had with this church and that we should have with our families. He uses the phrase like a father to say that you were like our own children, that we cared about you deeply and we spoke to you just like a good father speaks to his own kids. And so what I want to do today is look at what's the conditions of being able to speak and then ask the question, what are the words that we need to use? And the first thing I need you to see is that the words that he spoke and the words that we speak must take place in the midst of a relationship. That the words that we speak, the words have power because of the relationship that we have with our kids. He says it right there in verse 8, that we cared so much for you. There was a relationship that had been built there. And the first thing that has to take place within a structure of a family, that has to take place in the structure of a relationship to truly be heard, is that you have to care. You have to show loving affection. I love the word that he uses here, because it's a word that means to feel drawn to someone. It's a word that was used in their time of a father cradling a child after birth. I remember the first time that um, Eli was born, and somebody handed me the first, not, this is the only time he's been born, but well, not technically, he also accepted Christ. I'd be second born again, but physically born, all right we're going to cut that from the video feed, all right. I remember when Eli was born, all right, and the nurse hands you the child, and you're like. I don't know that that's a good idea. I don't know that I'm really comfortable with this. Like, you're stiff and you're like holding and all that. And you're just kind of, it's just strange. You're like, what am I, you know, and by the time we had Ava, the fourth one, uh, the nurse handed me the child. I stuck her in my arm. I'm walking around. She goes, that's not your first, is it? I said, no, we've done this a few times. But some of my favorite times as a dad have been in those days and weeks shortly after birth. When I'm sitting in the recliner, and they're just in my arms. You can hold them like right here, right? They lay their heads on your shoulder, and they're just there, right? I don't can't do that with Eli very much anymore. He kind of he probably could do it with me, but I can't do it with him anymore. Right? The picture there is that we, as dads, we as believers, we as family, need to constantly be about showing the affection we have for one another. And you say, well, I'm not the affectionate type. Here's my advice to you if you're not the affectionate type. Get over it. Get over it. Well, my kids are too old to have affection shown to them. I understand that kids get older and they're like, I don't want all that. I mean, Luke's our child that runs from us if we act like we're going to give him a hug. You know, we still chase him down and we give him hugs occasionally. All right. Your kids, your family needs to know that you love them. I read a thing this week that I just thought was amazing. This is from a a lady named Sarah Scherf. I don't know her. I don't know anything about her, but I saw this online. And uh, she wrote in a thing called Still a Daughter. She says, I spent last week at the beach in Florida relaxing with my family. The week was for eating fresh seafood, sitting by the beach, throwing the Frisbee, and catching up with my dad. My parents are divorced, and that process took about nine years. I had erratic and intensely negative feelings for and about my dad throughout my high school and college years. Those feelings have mellowed out, and as adults, we get along okay. We live 1,200 miles apart and don't see each other often, but I'm always glad to visit him when I can. This beach trip was his initiative. He provided a big place for us all to meet up and spend some time together, but at the week's end, my dad said something to me that left my mind quiet and full of one thought. At the end of a perfect day of hunting for shells with the little girls, we had to pack up the car and pass around goodbye hugs. My dad hugged and kissed me. His arms are still so strong and tight. No one's hugs feels like his. He told me again how thankful he was that we could be there. And he told me he was so proud of me. I have to admit, after hearing those words from my dad, my 29-year-old self was filled. I've always thought my dad's been proud of me. I'm at least sure he's not disappointed in who I am or what I've done with my life. But hearing him say it to me, despite all our past and its residue, despite my independence from him, despite the deeply affirming relationship I have with my own husband, it was like I've needed that for the last few years. 29 years old, she still needs to hear of the affection from her dad. Paul is able to say what he's going to say, what he tells them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's building up to, hey, I've got some things I need to tell you. But understand it's coming from a loving relationship. Not only is the relationship loving, but it's transparent. He says right here, you are pleased to share with you not only the gospel, like we told you the gospel, we shared with you about Jesus. But more than that, we shared our lives with you. Dads, you need to share your life with your kids. When you struggle, it's okay to let them know you struggle. Now understand, there are some things that you may struggle with or that may be going on in your life that you don't need them in on, you know, you don't need them talk about all the time. But they need to know that you're not not just trudging through, that you have difficulties in life. You have excitements in life. There are things that you love, that you're passionate about, things that you care about. They need to see who you are. They need to see what kind of work you do. They need to understand what's going on in your life. They need to have you engaged. He says, I gave you our lives as well. I served you. I lived with you. I showed you. We, we were not just outsiders who told you about Jesus. We lived among you and with you. And as dads, that means opening up our lives to our families. It means even letting them in to who we are. Letting them see that we struggle, letting them see that we have joy, letting them see that things are good, letting them see that things are difficult, letting them see that we have areas where we're not perfect, where we don't have it all figured out. It's also letting just see the things of our lives that are important. I remember when I was uh, growing up in Dyersburg, we had a, um, we had Boy Scouts and Cub Scouts and all that. And I never made it to Cub Scouts uh, because I just did my service time in a thing called Tiger Cubs. Tiger Cubs was the pre-Cub Scouts Cub Scouts, all right? And Tiger Cubs was organized by dads, and the dads would get together at our local school, and each dad took a month to do the program. Now, when I was growing up, just the way things happened at my school, like all of my friends' dads were like what the community would see as important guys. Like there was a radiologist in town that was like the radiologist in town was my was one of my friends. His his dad was one of my fr- friends with our parents and all of that. Um, a dentist in town, lawyer in town, judge in town, and my dad was a, a truck shop worker at a rubber manufacturing plant. And I remember thinking, like, being excited about the other dad stuff. Like, man, I'm going to get to go to a dentist office, right? And I was like, can we give people shots, like, in the mouth? That'd be awesome. Like, no, you can't do that, all right. Like, radiologists, like, they x-rayed us, you know, like, that's cool. You know, you get cool stuff. And I was thinking, my dad works at a truck shop in a manufacturing place. Dad wouldn't tell me what he was doing for that day. And I kept, like, Dad, like, you know, because, like, my rep's on the line here. I'm a first grader. I got big things going, all right. Like, what's going on? And my dad drove up into the elementary school parking lot in an 18-wheeler semi. Because that's what he worked on all day. And I was like, yeah, I'm the coolest kid in town. That's awesome, right? <laughs> so he's like, you'll get up, you'll honk the horn. Like, you, need, you let a first grade boy climb into a semi and honk the horn, it's like the greatest day alive, all right? So honking the horn. I'm like, y'all come on up into my dad's truck. Like, it, my dad, it wasn't his truck, he never drove it. But that's what I told him, all right? But in that moment, he let me in. I remember going down to visit his office. My dad's office was in a truck shop in a rubber manufacturing plant. And so, like, Mom, if we visited him, we couldn't wear good clothes. We we had to wear old clothes, old shoes, because it was going to get dirty, like carbon black everywhere. Dad had uniforms that he changed into at work he didn't bring home because he didn't want to get them in our house. And so I remember going into his office, and he had a little office. He was uh, helping to manage the truck shop, and in his office, right in the middle... Uh, of, uh, everything's covered in like this soot-like stuff, all right? Like what you get on top of roofs. Everything was kind of covered in that. But right in the middle was a square sheet of paper, and it just said uh, prayer list. I, our family was at the top, and then all these people he worked with were on that list. And I remember just being felt like I was let into his world for a minute. And it changed how I viewed him. Let your kids in. That doesn't mean you've got to take them to work four days a week. Your coworkers will tell you not to do that, all right? But let them in, all right? Thirdly, we see from here, in the next verse, if we go on, we see that there was an unselfish devotion to them. Working day and night that we would not be any burden to you. We preached God's gospel to you. We were unselfish in our devotion to you. We sacrificed for you. We gave up our rights for you. And part of being a good dad is that we sacrifice for our families. We work hard for our families. We give up fun stuff that we might want to do all the time for our families. We have to understand that we have to have a different definition of success than what the world says. Part of the reason that I went early and wasn't here last Sunday is because I spent last Sunday at a church plant in Mesa, Arizona, near Mesa, on the east side of Growing Phoenix. A guy named Whitney Clayton is is planting a church in that part of the country. And I was talking to him. We were driving. He picked us up at the hotel. There were a group of us that went. Uh, Rick and Deb Baca from our church went and um, Ashley and Sharon Clayton that have been visiting because that's their son, Whitney we we rode out there in a van together and uh, got there and as we're driving around he shows this community where they have just Settled, And Whitney was one of the first kind of families to go into this community. And, and so I just kind of say, so, so how much are they building out here? And he said, well, there are lots of businesses building out here. He said, Apple just built a $2 billion facility out here right in our, like half a mile from where, where our neighborhood is. And he said, they're getting ready to make this development. They're in phase one. I said, well, how many houses are going to be in the development total? He said, well, right now they're projecting at least 50,000. That 50,000 houses, all right? And I was like, oh, oh, so a couple of of houses are going in there. All right, I got that. And I said, so what's your biggest challenge out here? Well, he said, the truth is that uh, it's kind of a neat community because every second block has a park in their neighborhood. They've got a kid's playground. They've got a parent, like a fire pit or a covered shade area for parents to kind of hang out. And everybody's mailbox is at the park. It's not at your house. He said, so every day to get your mail, you have to go to the park. And he says, that means that you're meeting your neighbors. He so says, it's a church planner's dream. He said, but the biggest struggle we have is that everybody here thinks that they're successful. Because they got a decent job. He said, almost everybody on our street has three or four kids. All their kids are involved in all the athletic stuff. They're going to a good school. He said, they think that's all there is. He said, our biggest job is convincing people that they're not successful. And I thought about how many people come to our churches every Sunday, and if you ask them what does success look like, their definition would be the same as the unchurched in Arizona. Our kids are doing well in school. We've got a nice house. I've got a decent job. I'm secure in it. We've got our kids involved in all kinds of stuff, church, but also sports and all that. When the reason that we parent, the whole point of parenting is to show our kids what a real relationship with Jesus Christ is like and lead them to the point where they can make a decision for themselves about whether to follow him or not. And that comes from unselfish devotion. And your witnesses, so is God, of how devoutly, devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves. If you want to earn the right to be heard with your kids, be authentic. You can't expect to lead your kids or speak your kids into places that you aren't willing to go or haven't gone yourselves. The phrase that I use, I've used in sermons before around here is when it comes to your faith, if it's not real to you, it won't matter to your kids. And if you try to speak to them about a life lived for Jesus, and your life shows no evidence or fruit of being lived for Jesus, you know what? They're not going to believe what you're saying to them about a life lived for Jesus. And so we live in a relationship. Where we're constantly talking to them about how much we love them, about how much we care for them, about that father cradling a child. Where we're transparent, where we let them into our lives, where we show them the struggles we have, the good things, the bad things. Where we're unselfish in the way that we serve them, the way that we work, the way that we provide, the way that we live. And that we're authentic. If you don't want to be heard by your kids, then live a life of harshness instead of affection. Of aloofness instead of transparency. Of selfishness instead of unselfishness. Of hypocrisy instead of authenticity. But if you live with affection and transparency, and unselfishness and authenticity, then they'll listen. And when you get that chance, Paul tells us what we should say. He tells us in the that we should speak with encouragement, comfort, and imploring. Our stories must be filled with encouraging, comforting, and imploring words. And I took this straight from. The scripture here. It says that we treated you like a father with his own children. Verse twelve, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each of you to walk worthy of God. We encouraged. It means to call to action. It means to give courage to. I think about the story that we told right at the beginning. About Jim and about what happened with him as he was trying to get out of that crevasse. As he's trying to climb out. And all he could hear was the encouraging words of his father. How Jim Davidson was sitting there at the bottom of this pit looking up. When you read the first chapter, he sees a glimmer of light at there and he thinks, I try to get there, but he doesn't know how he's going to reach there. He's on a ledge that's two feet wide and he's on something that's collapsing underneath him. But he hears over and over and over again the encouraging words of his father. You probably heard this before, but the word encouragement means to instill courage in, to give courage to, to help to see the possibilities of. And so part of our primary job as fathers in our households as parents as mothers in our household is to encourage our kids to do what they can do and beyond what they think they can do it's to set them up for success it's to tell them that they're able it's to be their biggest supporter we speak with encouragement a call to action but then it also says that we speak with comfort that we soothe, that we console, that when things go wrong, we embrace them. We give them a word of encouragement in that moment. We comfort when their heart is hurt, when their failures are new. We wrap them into ourselves and tell them it's going to be okay. We give them words of comfort that they desperately need to hear when they're unsure of who they are or what they're doing or where they're going. Sean and... Leanne Toohey, who you may or may not know, were the parents um, who took in Michael Orr, the guy from the blind side, had written a book called In a Heartbeat, and they tell this story. They have a real heart for the foster care system and for adoption, and they tell the story about a congressional program that helps kids that have aged out of that program. They put them in internships. They help them in different areas, and in one particular instance, a senator, a U.S. Senate, had um, hired as an intern one of these kids that had aged out of the system, he walked in one morning and the intern was in the, the mailroom of their office and was uh, cleaning it up. And he just said, just off the cuff, man, that looks great. I've never seen the mailroom look so clean. And the intern looked at him and said, thank you, sir. And then began to like cry. And he was like, what in the world? You know, did, I, did I say something to offend you? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to hurt you. He goes, no, sir. So that's the first time anyone has ever told me I did a good job. Part of our job, first of all as parents, is to make sure our kids again and again and again hear that we are for them and that we believe in them and that we love them. And the thing is, it's not one-to-one criticism to compliment to be effective. That according to research, you need ten compliments for every criticism. I mean, think about your own life. If I walked out on the hallway today and ten of you walked up to me and said, great job, pastor, good sermon, really appreciate it, spoke to me today. And one person walked up and goes, that was terrible. Which one of those am I going to remember two hours later? That was terrible. Now, some of you are tempted just to say that because I said that today. All right? I will not consider it sarcasm. Right? That's why you can encourage your wife, your husband, your children Again and again, and then you do say something critical, and they say you're always criticizing me. Because we remember that, you have to learn to balance it. And then the third thing, and you know, all we encourage, and you know, all we comfort, but this is the third thing, we're almost done, is we implore them. This is the strongest word that he used. It means to declare or testify something is true and action must follow. These are non-negotiables. These are things that we don't relent on. These are the things that we say, no, you're not doing that. No, you're not going there. No, that's not good for you. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, it tells us that Eli's sons were scoundrels with no regard for the Lord. In 1 Samuel 3.13, it tells us that God holds Eli accountable for that. It says, because the sin he knew about, his son's blasphemy, God, and he failed to restrain them. We have an epidemic in our culture where we're letting our kids determine the direction of our lives as families and where we are no longer willing to say no. I was looking for a quote this week about children having, uh, being, that, that parents, we need to parent our kids and not be friends with them. And I found it in the strangest place. I never expected this. I found it from a country music star who lives in Goodlettsville. And Garth says, so here's Garth, all right. Someone asked him about being friends to his kids, and he said, my children have enough friends. They need me to be a parent. I don't know what else he says is good, but that's good, all right. They need you sometimes to say no. Sometimes the most loving thing you can say to your kid is absolutely not. So the question is, all right, we've built this relationship. We've got these words to speak. When do we do it? Tell you three times that you ought to take advantage of every opportunity because the truth is with the schedules we have now, you must take advantage of every opportunity. First of all, meal time. A Harvard study says that the most important time to the development of children is not playtime or school time, but dinner time with family. And it's one of those things that is going away in our society. We've recently um, started uh, This, uh, you know, the the meal kit preparation delivery stuff, you know, Blue Apron, Home Chef, Hello Fresh. We started one of those. My kids love it. They don't like it at all. All right. Because there are lots of vegetables in it. Right. Like the part of the thing is you're eating healthier, but we bought it because it's healthier you have vegetables in it and all that and so we it also means that we 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 sit around the table because they're supposed to be done in 30 minutes and so we have this stuff and and so we we sit around the table we eat now now we've heard complaints from the kids the first night we did it we had um, some kind of uh, pork with rice and asparagus and Ava said daddy I really don't want to eat my cactus and I said well uh, baby girl I don't want to eat the cactus either that's asparagus she goes It's asparagus or cactus, which you can't say asparagus very well, but asparagus or cactus, I don't like it, whatever it's called. And so we have some of those discussions, but it does encourage us on those nights to sit around the table and talk. Now, our kids are like most kids. It's uncomfortable for them. They want to eat, get up and be done and go to something else. But those moments around the table are important. And in those moments, open up yourself and speak to them. Ask them questions, even though they don't want to be asked questions. Engage their lives, even though they want their lives engaged. Allow them to see your life, but spend time with them there. Secondly, travel time. Going to and from practice, to and from school, to and from events. Do you realize that I saw this study the other day that Nashville is consistently in the top 10, sometimes in the top five of most time that we spend in a car that people in Nashville spend more time in a car than almost anybody else in the country. Take that time. Take advantage of it, right? Some of you are like, that's why I don't get out in a car because there are too many people spending time in a car. Like That's become a mobile thing. And then this is hard, and I understand this. As a dad, I understand this, but bedtime is a great time. It's hard because I know life gets in the way, and the thing that you look down at your watch, and you're like, goodness, it's 15 minutes past when they're supposed to go to bed. Get your teeth brushed. Get to bed. Let's go. Like You want to rush it. But it's a precious time to talk to your kids. The stories you tell are vitally important. That proverb just keeps coming back to me. And I pray that I'll remember this on a regular basis this week, this month, this year, for the rest of my life as I interact with my kids. Proverbs 18, 21. We're going to put it back up on the screen. Because it tells us that our words have the opportunity to, to bring death or to bring life? And the question is, what are your stories or what are your words bringing? In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, and it's going to be really twofold. First of all, if you're here today and you're a dad or you're a mom, the truth is that none of this happens. None of what we've talked about happens. None of the encouragement, none of the love, none of the things that really matter to your kids happen unless you're in a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ yourself. If you're a dad or mom here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, let me just tell you, there are some things that you can do that will look good on the outside, but the eternal significance of what you're doing is void without Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you've never been saved, you don't even really understand what that means, or maybe you understand it well, You've just never done it. Can I encourage you that today is the day to get that right? I'm going to be standing down front in just a moment. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of response, and I'm going to be standing down front. And if you are that person and you need to talk to someone about following Jesus Christ, then I'm going to be standing there. I'd love to talk to you. Mom, Dad, maybe you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, but you realize your words have been bringing more destruction than building up lately. And you just want to pray, God, help me to be the one that speaks encouragement and comfort. That I'm bold in saying this is what we need to do when we need to do it, but that I do it in a loving caring environment. Maybe you're here today and you're someone that comes from a fatherless home. And you're just praying, God, I don't want to be, God, I don't want to be one of those statistics. I want to follow you all my life to be different. Can I tell you that the same Jesus the died on the cross is the same one that wants to rescue you from wherever you are in life. And today, I'll be standing there. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to follow him. We're going to have a time of response in just a minute. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come and play. I'm just going to ask you to respond however the Lord leads. Let's pray together.